Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are in the world right now. This is Emrys Wang of The Raw Entrepreneur. Today is a special series called The Product Series Live on Mind Valley, where I get amazing people like today's Dr. Emily Yonker, who's going to give a talk on wild mothering and human husbandry, parenting through the lens of evolutionary biology and animal care. That's a long one. Sounds very, very, uh, very smart and very, very thesis forming. Very, uh, you know, she's a brainiac, this lady here. Uh, she's really good with words. She's a mom. She's a herbalist vet. She's, oh, I don't know what else she is. She is a conscious living being. Um, she's doing her best as a parent. I actually really, really love and enjoy um, following her on Instagram. And she writes... Um, very, very thought-provoking stuff that I do encourage everyone to, to look to. I mean, like, I'm not a mom, but if you want to know what's it like to be a mom in today's society, <laughs> you really should follow her. She's very, she, she gives really insightful stuff, which I love. So, Dr. Emily. Uh, welcome to my PodX talk. Um, uh, in March 1st of this year, uh, 2021, I... Um, gave birth to my third child. Uh, his name is Yulin. Uh, he was born on my living room floor. In attendance was my husband, um, my older son, Owen, my parents, and an unlicensed birthing professional. Um, this is a, a f actually an incredibly uh, unusual event in the United States. Um, something like less than half of a percent of children are born under those circumstances. Um, and as such, it is a pretty singular and um, unique event. However, in the context of um, a global population and in the context of the history of humankind, this is the default way that human beings have been born for tens of thousands of years, ever since we could define ourselves as human as opposed to other forms of primates. Um, and extended further, we could say that this is the way that mammals birth. Um, and I think that that's a, a really important point to make is that while um, my experience is quite exceptional among our current social circles. It is the normal way of being human um, in a bigger context. Um, and when I zoom out a little bit, I can extend that and I can say, to a certain extent, we birth the way we live. Birth is not a singular event. It is not disconnected from the rest of our lives. And the more we choose to live with our humanness in the same way that we choose to, well, in, in that the humanness is animalness as opposed to technology, um, the more the choices we make may seem exceptional to a technology um, and industrial and capitalist world, 
but in reality, they are more true to actually being human. And, um, and that is a thread that connects many, many aspects of my life. Um, so I, I have a background. Um, I, I am a, a veterinarian. I'm a licensed veterinarian. I uh, graduated with my doctorate of veterinary medicine in 2013. Um, and before that, I did a couple of years of graduate school. And I, before that, I did um, a bachelor's degree in biology with an emphasis on animal sciences. Um, and then I also did some random postgraduate work sprinkled throughout. Um, and very much of my formal education is centered around things like ecology, um, animal behavior, um, zoology. Uh, and then I also have extended that into a, a personal exploration of things like anthropology and history um, and women's studies. And so there's a there's a thread throughout that is sort of trying to say, who are we as people, biologically, culturally, um, and what is the same about us as all the other primates or mammals, and, and what is different about us? And then that became a lot less academic and a lot more real world when I started making choices. I mean, a lot of choices. You make a lot of choices when you become a parent, <laughs> conscious or unconscious. There's a lot of choices. Um, and when I started making choices about how to parent, all of those things started becoming really real. And that's where I think that some of the concepts from animal sciences, such as husbandry, come into play. And that's where that part of that title comes from. Um, and so I'd like to introduce a couple of the, the concepts of husbandry. And then um, another term, I did, I did not coin this term, but I, I think it is apt, which is wild mothering, and where the intersectionality of husbandry and wild mothering come into play um, when it comes to parenting. And really, I mean, we could extend this and say we can parent ourselves. Um, and I, I think that most of parenting in our particular generation, at least conscious parenting, is more about parenting yourself than it is actually the day-to-day -day of caring for children, because it's a lot harder work. Um, so, um, I'll, I'll kind of start with the concept of husbandry. This is a little dry. I'm sorry about that, but I, I promise to make it as interesting as I can. <laughs> All right. So, um, animal. So, people who have a background in, in animal uh, care of any kind probably know uh, what the word husbandry is, but I find that uh, it doesn't necessarily translate to a wider audience. So, I, I will actually tell you what that is. Husbandry is basically all the things that you do to meet the needs of animals. They're very species specific. Um, and so I will give the example of a dairy cow. Husbandry as a term is most commonly used for livestock. So it is applied to animals that are cared for by humans. Uh, it does not apply to observing the traits of wolves in the wild, for instance, necessarily. It is more specifically about how do you care for something in captivity of one kind or another. So for a dairy cow, you have to figure out what does this animal eat and how do I get them that food? Um, you, you say, what are its temperature needs? Like what's the range that it can tolerate and how do I accommodate that need? Um, 
through shade or um, a barn or whatever. Uh, and ho horses wear blankets, you know, things like that. Um, you figure out what is it, how does this particular being reproduce? How, how do I understand their reproductive cycle so that I can um, ensure future generations of healthy animals? Um, that's a whole realm in and of itself right there. <laughs> um, and of course, for dairy production, they actually have to reproduce regularly almost every year for for conventional mainstream dairy production so it's really intense and you're trying to like maximize it so husbandry can be really interventional and intense sometimes um which is what really what dis makes it distinct from simply understanding animal behavior or companion animal care um and uh other things that that involves are understanding their social needs so cows for instance do not do well by themselves they need companions or they will not thrive um, and so you have to figure out as a dairy farmer how to maintain herds or if you have one dairy cow in your backyard you need to have some goats or another cow to keep it company um and so it, the list goes on and on and on but you you have to know that species and then you have to figure out how to meet those needs in the context of your relationship with that animal um, and this applies to every single animal that has a relationship to man in one way or another and so it's probably pretty easy to see how this has overlaps with parents you got to figure out how to feed this kid. You got to figure out how to keep this kid the right temperature. You got to figure out what their, you know, social needs are, um, and figure out how to meet those needs in the context of your life. That and human husbandry, right there. That's what it is. Um, and so there's a million. I mean, really. I mean, there's more than that. For every single person or family structure out there, there is a way of approaching human husbandry um, because your cultural needs, your family needs, depending on where you are within your um, uh, your placement in your ecosystem. I mean, there's, there's endless ways in which your life is going to impact the husbandry choices that you make and what your emphasis needs to be. Um, and so within the constructs of our current world, for the most part, we are dealing with a industrialized world that doesn't necessarily, actually it never, it never makes children a priority in how you construct the world, for instance. Um, and it doesn't really take the needs of parents into account really at all, ever either. Um, and you, you don't get to take breaks and step away because there is no um, structure to support that. And so you have to figure out how to meet the needs of the children in the context of one or two parents who work full-time outside the home and have very little, very little, if any, intergenerational or community support. And that's going to influence your choices immensely. Um, and then the concept of wild mothering. Um, wild mothering is a an understanding of the needs of children and families from the perspective of saying, how are humans designed to be? Full stop. Instead of adding the addendum of 
within a context of a social structure or a modern, modern world. Because unless you understand what the needs and the norm is for the human species, it's really hard to figure out how to prioritize things and make decisions in your own life. Um, and so wild mothering says we are basically really fancy primates with complex social structures, um, but we are primates. <laughs> um, and we need to not forget that. We need to remember that we are not separate from the animal kingdom. Nature is not something that we go visit. We are nature. and we embody it no matter what we're doing. Um, and the more we forget that, the more we make some really poor decisions for ourselves and our children. Um, when you look at, hu at human husbandry, when you look at the choices that we make surrounding childcare, they make sense if your priority and your lens is industrialist and capitalist. They make really no sense at all if your focus is child development and whole beingness. Um, and so we just sort of say, well, in that case, let's focus on, on really what the ideal is. And the ideal is basically focused on connectedness. I mean, we have to meet some physical needs. We have to figure out how we're gonna feed this thing and keep it warm and keep it dry and keep it from getting diseases. Um, uh, but we also need it to be connected. Um, we developed as a species in many, many, many details, many details for the purpose of connection. I mean, the, the reason our eyes are relatively close together in comparison to other species is because we're, we're forward facing so that we can look each other in the eye. There, most species find eye to eye contact challenging. Humans find it connecting. Um, we have an enormous amount of our brain that is dedicated to the textures that we experience in our mouths and lips. Um, some other primates do this too, but it's, and it's partially because of a, an omnivorous diet, but it has a whole lot to do with the fact that we speak to each other and we move our faces and we need to understand when we are looking at each other in the face, all the different social cues that come from that. It is so important that we watch each other's faces. And so our, we have big parts of our brain dedicated to that. And our babies, from the moment they are born, will look at us in the face. In fact, the distance between the human face and the breast is basically the exact distance that a newborn can see. They can't see further than that, but they can see that because from the moment they are born, they want to connect with their caregiver instantly. Um, and as soon as you understand that, then you understand that that baby should not be separated from that caregiver because that is their entire world. And so then, then the idea of putting an infant down and wrapping them in a blanket and putting them in an isolate, maybe even taking them to another room, seems absolutely insane. And it's like, why would we do that? Well, I mean, literally like every single child born in the West does this. Um, even the ones who are immediately placed skin to skin with their moms when they're born are then taken away and cleaned and bathed and put a hat on and wrapped in a towel and put in a bed by themselves. And then when you're in the hospital, they then tell you, leave the baby in the bed unless you're feeding the baby and then put the baby back down um, because we don't want you to accidentally suffocate the baby in the bed. 
And that's the most terrible, absurd anti-mammal advice that could possibly exist. There is no anthropologist who has spent any time looking into human behavior. There is no mammal reproductive specialist in any species ever who would say that is absolutely the best way to do it and definitely the safest. No, no, that is a, an idea that we have come up with because our, our default is to look at each person as an individual instead of to understand the connectedness between people. But we are a species that is connected. Um, and so that, that's one, that is the, probably the biggest aspect of it is understanding that connectedness piece to what wild mothering is. Um, but why don't we call it connected mothering? Because there's, a, there's another piece of that too, um, which is that mammals are highly connected to their environment as well. Um, and our environments are, are a lot of man-made things, um, a lot of highly processed and produced things, um, and they meet our needs within the construct of an industrial capitalistic world. Um, and I don't want to knock on those things. I mean, I drove a car to get here. I'm currently wearing glasses. I, I have a stainless steel water container. I mean, I'm talking on a computer. Um, you know, technology is great. But it is not our humanness. It is not what we need to thrive. We spent all except, you know, this 0.1% of our existence as humans um, without these things. And we got here without these things, which means our essential humanness is not reliant on these things. And potentially it gets in the way of a lot of things. And so if we parent from the lens of what actually is it that children need um, from their environment? And it turns out the list is pretty extensive and really hard to meet in an entirely man-made way. So they need soil microbiome. Um, and you can just bring dirt into your house if you want to. People do that. And it's actually on a lot of these like natural parenting sites. If you live in a city, how can you do this? You can bring dirt into your house. Uh, or you could just spend a lot of time outside, which some of us have the luxury of doing. Um, and we do so. Um, children need a variety of movement. Um, and it turns out that walking on sidewalks and walking on floors that are even and smooth is actually fairly detrimental to their development. Um, they, and going to the playground for 45 minutes a day is better than nothing, but actually being outdoors on varied textures where you need to climb and where you need to adjust the angle of your foot and where you need to figure out what your balance is and where you need to figure out how to step over and crawl under things in, in the, just in the daily, like that's just how you get around and how you do things, turns out to be way, way, way better for your physical and mental development. Um, and so this, this aspect of understanding the wild needs of this species, this human species, um, literally can apply to every single thing that we do. Um, and and so when you're making parenting decisions, it doesn't mean you have to read a book about every single one of these topics. That would be absolutely overwhelming. Um, but as they come up, you pick. And so, for instance, when um, when my when I was pregnant with my first child, um, I knew that for me, one of the things that I wanted to do was breastfeed. And that's something that I was also aware is really challenging to do just generally in our culture. 
Um, but even more specifically, if I was planning on working full-time outside the home. And so I, um, I have the, um, the means and the capacity and the luxury, um, the privilege of having the time and, and some money to dedicate to understanding how to make that work for me. Um, and so I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure that out and, um, and I have pulled it off. Um, I'm, I'm really proud of that. Um, but it, <laughs> and it's a, it's an interesting way of looking at things because when you look at, well, the default is nursing. Okay, great. That sounds good on paper. Um, how do you do that? <laughs> Um, in our in our particular American um, individualist culture, most of us have never seen an infant nurse, especially a newborn nurse, until we are holding our own and trying to figure it out. Um, that is not the norm historically. And so when we fail, when it feels really hard, we think that we are somehow broken, that we think that we can't do this because our generation or our bodies have failed us. Well, what we don't understand is that because humans are meant to live in connection, we are not meant to do this alone or in the way that we're doing it. Um, we are meant to have been the auntie. We are meant to have been the older sister. We are meant to have been assisting at birth from the time that we are you know, 11 years old. And so we have seen birth, we have seen newborns, we, have, we are aware of what they can do and what they can't do. We're aware of their normal reflexes and the ways that they want to do things. And we watch moms do it regularly and accommodate those needs and be supported by others when they have challenges. And, um, and that, that those mothers are then given the time and space and support that they don't actually have to do really anything else except figure out how to nurse that baby for a while. And then as they're capable, they can add in other parts of their lives again. And you have people who can, you can also hand that baby off to. You are not the only person caring for that child. Um, and so you can look at this historically like I have right now or evolutionarily by looking back at what did our, you know, you know, recent primate ancestors do. Uh, but you can also look this just multiculturally and you can say, well, I mean, what do other people do? <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, Americans aren't the only ones out there. <laughs> highly, uh, highly, highly uh, industrialized cities like Singapore are not the only <laughs> ones out there. What do other people do? You know? Um, and so you can say, okay, well, in this particular culture, um, they have, they move in with their moms. Oh, Oh, then you have like someone who actually like brings you stuff and someone who's done it before. Oh, that's kind of helpful. And then you say, oh, and this group over here actually you has an has their next door neighbor who, you know, they live in a much, a very much smaller space. Their next door neighbor just comes over like every day and like hangs out with them after they have a baby. Oh, that would be nice. Then you like actually have another grown up to talk to. That would be cool. And they've like done this before. That would be really nice. And then you're like, Oh, and this place over here actually like pays you to not go to work for the first two years so that you can just raise your baby and figure it out. Oh, that'd be nice. That'd be cool. And then this other place over here um, has this incredible earth connection and they have complex rituals surrounding the importance of motherhood that they've been participating in since the time that they started uh, menstruating. And you're like, 
dang, that's some deep stuff. And, and when you start just seeing, oh my gosh, there's a whole world outside. And I can, I mean, because we have this incredible privilege, we can sort of choose, can I figure out how to recreate that, a, a part of this, a part of this in my life? And that's where the wild mothering aspect comes in. It comes in and says, what parts of this humanness, what parts of the wild parts of us can I salvage? Can I pull out of this experience that, that, that I have access to, to bring that into our lives here and now um, so that we can get back a bit to the human blueprint you know what is it to be human what is what is in our bodies what is in our our ancestry um and how can we understand and embrace that more um and i, I think it's really important to acknowledge that connection to land connection to ancestors connection to um to animals that do it as well. I mean, it's really fascinating to watch other animals breastfeed their young and figure out how they do it. Um, and there are species differences, but there's some really interesting overlap. So uh, for instance, uh, sometimes not quite as much right now in America, but really not long ago, um, there was a, a big emphasis on timing how often your baby nursed. Um, and there's like apps developed so that you can like figure out exactly how much your baby is getting and you can like weigh them before and after. It's, I mean, very, very structured. Let's talk about, I mean, talk about applying like a level of intensity to like the most normal mammal act since the dawn of time. Um, and yet, you know, other animals don't do this <laughs> unless there's a big problem. And, uh, and so we sometimes call it um, infant feeding on request or infant feeding on demand, um, where basically the baby indicates that they are hungry and you have figured out their little newborn or infant language. And so you recognize when your baby is hungry and you feed them and you feed them until they say that they are done and they stop. And then you acknowledge that, okay, they must be done now. They must have enough. And you approach that level of trust to your relationship that you know that they will ask when they are hungry and they will stop eating when they are not. And they approach the relationship with, when I'm hungry, I will be provided for. And when I am not, I will not be forced. And that, that is the beginning. I mean, really the core beginningness. I mean, you guys, you could, you could take it back further to when we deliver our babies, but then you get kind of into some complex medical maternal political stuff but let's start with nursing because it's a little slightly less controversial <laughs> um you you are placing that trust in that relationship with that child and you're you, that trust then extends later so when you're ready to introduce food to that baby you don't necessarily sit down and come up with a specific plan that is okay, we have to feed this exact amount on this day. And then starting at four months, we do it this way. And starting at six months, we do it this way. And then when they get to nine months, we do it this way. And when they get to one year, we completely wean because then they can be on food and they can have a complete diet and we can rotate all the foods to make sure they don't have any allergens. And, and you can get really intense about it. You, you, I mean, you can take this really far. Um, or you can watch what other animals do. Chimpanzees are an excellent example of this, but there's, I mean, even horses do this. And you sort of watch them and you see that the baby is like, what are you doing, mom? can I have a piece of that? And then mom's kind of like, sure, you can have some of that. And then they just try it. 
And sometimes it doesn't get digested, comes out looking kind of the same as it went in, but that's okay. It, it's them getting used to it, them figuring it out. And, and you just do that and you do it a little bit at a time and as they're ready and as they're interested. And over time you have a child with a diverse palate who's never been forced to eat anything. And so they don't hate vegetables um, and they eat very similarly to the way their parents ate and they don't have food addictions. They don't do emotional eating because it's never been tied up with that for them. When they were hungry, they were given food. And when they weren't, they weren't. Um, and you start to see, wow, um, actually, if we do things the way that human mammals are sort of designed to do things, if we follow to the extent that we can, the human blueprint, we can avoid a lot of these problems that can be, I mean, a big deal as life goes on. Um, another big one that makes the parenting rounds a lot is um, children being diagnosed with attention deficit disorder um, and hyperactivity. And, um, and I, I don't wanna pretend that, that that's not a thing, but there is definitely discussion over whether it is being over-diagnosed and whether it, is, and certainly, I mean, it is being over-medicated. And, um, and when we say, oh, what's wrong with these kids? They can't sit still. That's a, a very industrial way of looking at it. The idea that children should be sitting still is the problem, not that children aren't sitting still. If we look at it from the point of child development and we say children actually are literally growing their bodies and the way we grow our bodies is through movement, rest, and nourishment. That's how you build a body. And so if you are getting all three of those things, you are developing a healthy body. And so if a child needs more movement, they need more movement. They don't need to be told, no, I'm sorry, you're inconvenient, you need to sit still. Um, we need to say we are not supporting children if we are telling them they need to sit still. And it doesn't necessarily make it easier as a parent who needs to send your kid to school because that's the only free childcare option we have in our world. Um, you still have to, I mean, I'm not telling you that you're making a right or wrong choice because we have to all make choices and compromises depending on what our priorities are. But it does help you to understand several things. One is there's nothing wrong with my child. There is something wrong with a system that demands that. And so when you are selecting schools, when you are selecting educators, when you are educating educators, when you are selecting school board members, when you are deciding what programs your child is going to participate in, you acknowledge my child has a high need for movement and there is nothing wrong with that. And I do not need to medicate my child to keep him still. I need to find him an activity where he can move. And this is where the wild mothering meets the husbandry. Here is the need, the normal, human mammal need. Here is the context I am working within. How do I come up with a way to make these things work? Um, and so for me, for my nursing relationship, going back to that, um, absolutely, I used a pump and I got the best pump I possibly could. And I read a lot about how to like maximize use of that pump. And I organized my schedule around how and when I was going to pump. And, I, and that is a very industrial way of looking at it. I literally had it marked on our work schedule, Dr. Yunker's pump breaks. Like everybody knew. I had a sign, I put it on the door. It's like, I showed a picture of a little cow and it was like, 
milk in progress. <laughs> and we laughed about it, but it was, it was a very clear priority for me. Um, and on the other hand, I, so literally, so a flip side of that same coin was that I said, okay, well, if I'm going to pump, then I'm going to be producing milk separate from my infant. But the whole point, or not the, the whole point, but a lot of this point is connection, not just feeding the child, but that connection that he and I need to each other. So how do I foster the connection if I'm gone all day? And um, in, it, it's, there's so much pressure. I mean, I would say even more so among working moms, but I mean, among all parents to basically do as little nighttime parenting as possible. You kind of front load all your parenting in the day and then don't really parent at night because everybody needs to sleep. That's definitely the message that we all get. Um, and I would, I, I mean, it doesn't sound bad on paper, which is why you have to look at that human blueprint, that wild mothering perspective and say, okay, well, what do other people in other places do? They parent at night. They don't stop parenting just because it's nighttime. Um, they live in connection with others. They sleep in connection with others. They eat in connection with others. Um, and they, you know, it looks a little bit different depending on the circumstances, but it's incredibly unusual for, I mean, it's really, I mean, frankly, it's kind of stupidity under any other circumstances, except where highly industrialized societies for an infant to sleep in a separate space. Um, I mean, that would have been idiotic uh, for anybody who didn't have really advanced locks and technology. <laughs> um, and it was only plausible in incredibly hierarchical, hierarchical societies that had elites. And the only reason that was plausible is because you basically just hired someone to sleep with the baby. So you didn't have to, like someone was still sleeping with the baby. The baby was still having their needs met at night. So this weird idea that we need to stop meeting infant needs at night or any child's needs or any adult needs at night is an artifact of feeling like we have to be so productive during the day. So um, for, for me personally, I was basically like, well, I got to figure out how to nighttime parent, except that I also still have to go to work. Um, and at the time I was working like a good, I was over 40 hours a week. Um, and so how do I, I mean, have this incredibly demanding job that I really can't take my infant to and sleep like I mean I mean basic human need I mean you die if you don't sleep <laughs> and sustain a nursing relationship with my child at night and and find a way to be connected to them instead of becoming bitter and and not a not a loving person um and so the answer was so incredibly obvious oh you just sleep with your baby like oh I mean that's that's what all the other mammals do that's what all the other humans do that's what our you know, great grandmothers did. Why did we stop doing this? Oh, because someone told us we were going to kill them. Uh, I mean, no, that's, I mean, that's just patently absurd. And yet we just sort of believe it because it sounds sciencey and it sounds, I don't know. I think that's the only reason it sounds sciencey. Um, and so we just ignore basic common needs of humans and attempt to simultaneously exist in this incredibly intense Western experience and they literally can't be done. And so people stop nursing, they stop meeting their children's needs in the name of their own sanity and in the name of pro productivity. 
And um, when you could just say, I mean, they're just wrong. I'm going to take care of my child at night and I'm going to tuck them into bed next to me and I'm going to nurse them. So I don't have to get out of bed. I don't have to pump extra. And we are both sleeping. And then it turns out that there's a whole bunch of biomechanical mechanisms that go into that too. It turns out that your baby, their temperature is more regulated. Their breathing is more regulated. Their heart rate is more regulated. They stay in deeper sleep. Well, not deeper sleep. They stay in like this perfect spot where it's not too deep and not too light longer during the night. So they sleep better. Turns out that you as the parent have less sleep wake changes. And so you sleep better as a parent. Um, And it turns out that your children just generally have less cortisol um, streaming through their bodies at any given time. And so the biology backs up the just basic necessities of living. And this happens over and over and over and over again, that if we can figure out how where the, where the place is between wild mothering and human husbandry that we will all be better off. And um, it goes beyond infancy. It goes beyond how you discuss things with your children happening in the world. You don't leave them out of the conversation because they're with you all the time. So you include them in ways they understand. Um, it in, it's about how you choose to spend your time. It's about your connection to the land. Where do you get your food from? Um, it's about your connection to your community. How can you show up to support someone else? It's really hard when everybody works all the time. It really is. And this is one area I have really, really struggled with, but it's something I'm working on because I've, I see how much healthier I would be if I could figure out that piece of it. Um, and so, you know, I'm not ready to write a book at this point because I'm still in it. Um, but it's so clear that once we understand our needs as humans and we look into the human blueprint and we look at making decisions from the perspective of what is the need of the human mammal, that we will be happier and healthier as people and families. Thank you for coming to my PodX talk. <laughs> wow. I'm so thankful and grateful that you took the time to listen to this podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could subscribe, download, rate, review, and share this with others whom you care about that may enjoy it as well. Thank you, and remember to be kind to yourself and others. Have a awesome day, everyone.